let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. But last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anything, or anyone, excuse me, who has your gods, he shall not live in the presence of your See for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me. And if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into <coughs> Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two maidservants, but he found nothing. And after he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. But Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel saddle and was sitting on them. And Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. And Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, but I cannot stand up in your presence. I am having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. Thank you, brother. All right, will you all turn with me to page 66 in the red? Oh, no. 
Our scripture text this morning is Genesis chapter 31, verses 22 and following. Our last study in this series on the patriarchs showed us Jacob in trouble with Laban, his father-in-law. And he was in trouble because Laban's sons were upset that Jacob had taken possession of Laban's sheep herds, however honestly, because it was his wages that he was taking. Jacob had gotten stronger, however, in wealth, whereas Laban's holdings were diminished. Now, the reason for that is because God was blessing Jacob in a specific way. So all of this began to brew in a family. You can imagine. So it was obviously time for Jacob to move on. So to do this, he ascertained the thinking of his two wives. Laban's daughters just so happened to be. They agreed with Jacob that Laban had not treated Jacob fairly in his business dealings. After all, Laban had changed Jacob's wages ten times. That's the sign of a cheat, you know. <laughs> he saw that Jacob's doing good, so, mm, boy, he's really, the, the sheep that he wants, uh, the sheep are producing a lot of those uh, kid goats and stuff, so I'll make them the, a, a different color, and he'd switch the color on Jacob, and then God would let those uh, animals produce, and so... Jacob kept, just kept getting wealthier, and uh, Laban was, uh, of course, upset by that. Or at least the sons were, because they thought it was unfair. But he wasn't treated unfairly. It was whatever uh, they had agreed upon. It was only because of God's intervention that Jacob prospered. Well, with the assurance that both Rachel and Leah were supportive of Jacob's desires to return to Canaan, Jacob mounted his family on camels and drove his vast herd of livestock before them as he set out for the hill country of Gilead. Verse 21. We outline three important spiritual lessons. Number one, people intend to belittle or slander another. They will often exaggerate to justify their intended actions. So we see that Laban is doing that. The truth contains its own merit. You don't have to help it. So, you know, by exaggerating it. Just tell the truth 
and the truth will out. It'll defend itself. Secondly, we learn that God watches over the economic issues of life and the just cause of cheated laborers. Employees were warned by James, for example, in the New Testament to pay the promised wages if they expected to receive the blessing of the Lord. And the employees are warned in the book of Matthew not to be greedy when the boss is generous to one of them, but not necessarily to all of them on the same level. So there's both sides and have to be kept in mind. Thirdly, thirdly, we learn that providence in and of itself is not, listen to this, providence in and of itself is not a sufficient signal to proceed with your plans. Why is that? Because sometimes providence from God is a test of your fidelity. It's not a green light saying, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And, and we think, oh, God's opened the door. Look at that. He opened the door. All I got to do is walk through. No, that's not all you got to do. You have to test providence by the word of God. By every word of God. That's how we're to proceed. And sometimes providence is a test. I'll give you an example. When uh, David was out on his evening walk on his balcony... Providentially, he was able to look down into the apartment of Bathsheba and she was taking a bath. Now, he wasn't meant to see that. But he did see it. And Providence provided that for him to see. And he could have said, Wow, look how fortunate I am. Providentially, the Lord is showing me this beautiful woman that I can take to be my bride. But the scripture said, thou shalt not commit adultery. He went with providence. He didn't go with the scripture. It cost him his kingdom. cost him the child that was conceived with Bathsheba. Her husband was murdered in uh, a fixed battle. David's kingdom was divided and taken away from him. Providence was not the answer. The scripture was the answer. But he didn't listen to the scripture. He had it. He didn't listen. So I would say that providence in and of itself is not a sufficient signal to proceed with your plans. It has to be proven. It has to be tested by God's word. To see if providence is a green light. Or maybe it's just a test of your fidelity to God's word. And that's easy. You can check it out. As noted then. We come to our text this morning. And Jacob is fast on the run. But Laban is in hot pursuit of Jacob. So as we come. Let's ask for the Lord's teaching. Father send your spirit upon us. We see these historical people in the uh, scriptures, and we are reminded that they're just, they're like us. They're sinners. They have their good points and they have their bad points. They don't always obey you. We don't always obey you. 
they do their own thing. Their hearts are not always in tune with your word. But you govern nonetheless. So we pray that you will help us. Be with our sick today. Help them, Lord, to get strong. This COVID is taking its toll on a lot of our people. And uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, you will heal them. In Christ's name, amen. As noted in the prayer, we're looking at the fact that Laban is in hot pursuit of Jacob. Laban's reasons for pursuing Jacob are three. Here they are. Number one. Jacob left secretly without notifying Laban. Who does something like that? He had a three-day start, verse 22. It took Laban seven days, verse 23, to catch up with him. And when Laban finally did overtake Jacob... He, with the many relatives that he took along, confronted Jacob, saying, verse 27, Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing and the music of tambourine and harps? He's saying, you know, I would have thrown a farewell party for you. Why didn't you... Why didn't you allow me to do that? Why did you sneak off? You know, I think Laban has a valid point. I mean, how would you like your house guests, let alone your own nephew, sneaking off in the night without so much as a farewell or a goodbye? Is this the way families should conduct themselves? Well, that said, Jacob does have a reason for his actions and his fears have some foundation to them. Verse 31, Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. Okay, but why would Jacob think that? Got to have some rationale. Well, he thinks that way because Laban's attitude towards Jacob had changed. Verse 5. Namely, he is jealous of Jacob's prosperity at his expense. I mean, that's the way he sees it. And even though he has tried to outmaneuver Jacob by changing his wages ten times, verse 5, God intervened all along and Jacob prospered and Laban's treachery notwithstanding, verse 9. Now, he's blaming Jacob for that. Laban is not seeing that God did this because of Laban's treachery. And there's a second reason. Laban pursued Jacob because Jacob fled without giving Laban an opportunity to say farewell to his daughters and his grandchildren. Laban's very words, verse 28. You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I want you to ask yourself the question. How upset would you be if your son-in-law fled in the night, taking your daughter and the grandchildren with him 
No goodbyes, no fare-thee-wells, just sneaking away under the cover of darkness, leaving no forwarding address, no phone number where they could be reached. I dare say you'd probably be upset. How upset was Laban? Verse 29. He tells Jacob, You know, I have the power to harm you. That was undeniably true. Laban had made the pursuit of Jacob not alone. (laughs) No, no. But accompanied by taking his relatives with him. Verse 23. The relatives are camped at Gilead with Laban. Verse 25. What did Jacob have? Well, he had two wives and two concubines, some servants, and eleven children ranging in various ages, but all of them still very young, certainly no match for any evil that Laban might contemplate doing. So he was in a hard way. So Laban has accused Jacob of actions similar to to that of a robber. If you think about it. Look at verse 26. You have deceived me. You have carried off my daughters. Like captives in war. Say well that, that wasn't right. Well that's the way he feels about it. And so he's stating that. Remember Lot was captured by the. Federation of kings that attacked Sodom. And Abraham pursued him. And rescued him using 318 of his own trained servants from his own household. So something similar is going on. Now, here we have Laban. He's steamed enough to tell Jacob, you are a deceiver, you're a sneak, you're a robber who has taken my own daughters captive as though they were the spoils of war. You can see he's pretty well upset. You have done a very foolish thing, and I have the power to give you a good and well-deserved thrashing. All of that's very true. So what's holding Laban back? Verse 23. He says, Last night, the God of your father said to me, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Verse 24. Let's not make any threats here. I'm watching what you're doing, God is saying. So once again, God has intervened on Jacob's behalf. Laban may have the physical wherewithal to harm Jacob for his deception and secret escape in the night, but he had best curb his anger. He best mitigate any cruelty he is contemplating to hurt Jacob. And fortunately, Laban recognized this and cooler heads prevailed. I think he was wise. I think Laban figured it out. If God is on anybody's side, he's on Jacob's side. And I better watch what I do or I will be in trouble with God. There is yet a third reason Laban pursued God. Perhaps the most important. I don't know. Verse 30. Let me paraphrase it for you. Jacob, I understand that you have run away because you were homesick for your family after many years, 20 years in fact. 
but stealing my gods is going too far. Verse 20. Verse 32 tells us that Jacob had no knowledge that Rachel had, in fact, stolen her father's gods. So it's not surprising that he basically gave Laban wide-scale permission. Well, search my tents, if that's what you think. Okay, Laban did. And he issued the directive that anyone in his family found with stolen goods belonging to Laban would be put to death. Verse 32. That's how confident Laban is that this is a false accusation. I don't have your guts. Why would I want your guts? Go ahead, search. Find what you can find. You won't find anything. And if you do, that person's a goner. So the search began. Laban first began with Jacob's tent then Leah's, then her two maidservants. But he came up empty-handed, empty-handed, empty-handed every time. Verse 33. Next was Rachel's tent. Mm-mm. She was the culprit. She had hidden the idols in a camel saddle upon which she was sitting. And she explained that she could not rise because she was having her period. Verse 35. And again, Laban went away empty-handed. <laughs> What's going on here? I know you guys got my God somewhere. Well, Jacob exploded. I don't know that you could blame him. Finally, Jacob had had enough. He erupted. He took Laban to task. Verse 36 saying, What is my crime? What sin have I committed? You searched all my belongings. Whatever you found that belongs to you, put it here in front of us, all, your relatives and mine, (coughs) that a fair assessment may be made between the two of us. Verse 37. That's how confident he was that he, he, nor anyone that he knew in his group, had done anything like this, stealing Laban's gods. Oh, and by the way, he was just getting warmed up, Jacob. Next, he reminded Laban that he, Jacob, had served Laban for 20 years. And in all that time, his livestock never miscarried, nor did Jacob feed himself or his family off of Laban's livestock, And when wild animals attack Laban's livestock, Jacob bore the loss, not Laban. When thieves stole sheep and goats, Laban demanded payment from Jacob. And on top of all this, it was Jacob, not Laban, who in the heat of the day and the cold of the night, verse 40, melted in the desert sun in the daytime and froze in the desert night, depriving him of sleep. I'm sure you know this or I've heard about it. Deserts, very hot in the daytime, very cold at night. And Jacob is saying, you know, that's what I was doing, watching over your livestock, 
You weren't out there in the hot sun. You weren't freezing at night. What had Laban done? Well, Laban saw to it that he made money off of his own daughter, selling one, then the other, to Jacob, verse 41, also verse 15, each with a seven-year hard labor price tag attached to them. Then six more years of hard labor, caring for Laban's livestock, all the while Laban became the master cheater, changing Jacob's wages ten different times. Verse 41. So Laban was the thief. He was. He was the thief. Robbing Jacob of his rightfully earned wages. And if it had not been for God's intervention, Laban would have sent Jacob away penniless without giving him a second thought. But God was watching. Remember this. God was watching. He was watching Jacob and God was protecting him. Even warning Laban with a rebuke. Verse 42. Now you can imagine that things were pretty pretty tense at this point. Son-in-law going head-to-head with his father-in-law. Both had probably too much and done... They had said too much and they had done too much. But it was all out in the open now. Communication had almost come to a standstill. And we wonder if the relationship can be saved. That brings us to Laban's rebuttal. And he's the one that did this. So this is admirable. Laban proposed a peace treaty. What? Yeah. He wisely began to cool things down after getting in his final licks towards Jacob for all the accusations. Laban answered, The women are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, all you see is mine. (laughs) It would have been better if he said, All you see were mine. (laughs) But he didn't say that. Pride wouldn't let him. It's Laban's way of saying, You know, Jacob, I made you. I made you. You were nothing when you were here. If you have anything, it's because of me. Pride lets us say things like that. We go too far. Nonetheless, observe Laban's confession and his solution. He goes on to say, Yet what can I do about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born. What's he saying? Well, he's confessing. What's done has been done. I can't change it. My daughters have made their choice to flee my house with you, Jacob. They've taken my grandchildren with them. 
It's a done deal, so what can I do? But Laban has something on his mind that he would like to propose to Jacob that could be done. What's that? Verse 44. Come now. Let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. He's saying, let's let's put an end to our arguing, to our anger, our jumping down each other's throats every time one of us speaks. Let's make peace. Smart guy. And Jacob was quick to comply. That sounds good to me. He took a stone and then invited all of Laban's relatives to do the same. And together they formed a heap of stones there on the border. Laban named it Jagar Sahadutha. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And Jacob called it Galid. Galid. Laban was speaking Aramaic. Jacob was speaking Hebrew. Both names mean the same thing. They mean witness heap. Witness heap. Here's a permanent witness to the peace treaty we're making today. Verse 48. This heap of stones on the border. Laban further named the pillar of stones Mizpah. Verse 49. His thinking being, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. (laughs) Many read this and they think, oh wow, that's a wonderful benediction. Uh, we, We could use that with each other. May the Lord bless and keep you while we are absent from one another. Sounds so um, downright cordial, doesn't it? I've heard people use it that way. However, that is not what Laban meant. What he is saying, verse 50, if you mistreat my daughters or if you take my wives, any wives, excuse me, beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Again, verse 52. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass, go past this heap to your side to harm you, and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor judge between us. This is a peace treaty. Hmm. You know. But there's some stipulations about it. There's some tension here. There's suspicion here. And so safeguards were put into place to keep each other in line lest their anger should flare up. Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac the scripture says. He invited all the relatives to seal the deal with a shared meal. The name given to God here, fear of his father Isaac. Why would Jacob entitle his father's God as 
the fear. Hmm. Well, I think it was because Jacob remembered that God had said all along that he, the younger son, would have preeminence over Esau, the older son. But his father Isaac, in utter disregard for God's wishes, tried to foil God's will by blessing Esau instead. And at that very moment, the realization of his sin hit Isaac, and we are told Isaac trembled violently. Verse 33. He knew at that instant that God Almighty was not one to toy with. God's will was to be done despite Isaac's attempt to the contrary and it shook him to the core with fear at just how defiant, how reckless he had been before his holy God, how close he come to being judged by God. The next morning Laban kissed his daughters and grandchildren goodbye and he and Jacob parted company And Laban returned home, never to see each other again as far as the scripture records. Now, if they they did, the scripture didn't record it. You think you have trouble in your family? (laughs) That's one of the things I've got out of this study. I mean, these guys are duking it out, and that's my daughter, and those are my grandkids, and now there you steal them, and I ought to give you a good thrashing, and those are my sheep that you have been paid with, and on and on it goes. There's some spiritual food for our souls from this account of Laban's pursuit. Thing one thing to learn is that two people of deception will eventually clash and have a have to part company. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, as duly noted before, tricked his brother into relinquishing his birthright for a bowl of soup. You remember that one? And then he conspired with his mother in a ruse to deceive Isaac, his dad, into bestowing the family blessing on him when his father had no such intention. Then hours, or days at the most, after Jacob arrived at Haran and Laban took him on as an employee, Jacob negotiated his wages, Rachel to be his bride, but the day after the wedding... When the veil was removed, behold, it was Leah, Rachel's older sister, that Laban had married off to Jacob, not Rachel. Jacob the deceiver had met his match in Laban the deceiver. How you like it, Jacob? It's like God is saying that to him. How you like being deceived? And for the entire 20 years that Jacob served Laban, seven years for each daughter, so that's 14, 
Six more to compensate Laban for livestock. Laban changed Jacob's wages ten times. Jacob, you want to know what it's like to be deceived? I'll show you what it's like to be deceived. You trickster. You have a father-in-law who makes you look like an amateur. This mutual animosity society had to eventually come to an end. I'm surprised it took 20 years before these two men parted company. The narrative indicates that it was Jacob's gracious compliance with Laban's trickery that was responsible for them remaining together and working together. As long as they did. (laughs) Yeah, Jacob's learning some things here. Neither man followed biblical protocol for peace. One of the accusations Paul brought against the Corinthian church was the divisiveness of their church politic. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from close household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 and 11. And then Paul returns to the same theme just two chapters later saying, You're still worldly, you Corinthians. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, well, I follow Paul. And another says, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas. Are you not mere men? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3 and 4. In other words, in order for harmony to result, where everyone is voicing a strong position, one has to give in, one has to say to himself, Enough! Enough! Count me out, I'm not in this anymore. Henceforth, I'm going to work for harmony and peace. But we don't do that. It's easy to vent. It's hard to compose oneself. It's the way of the world. Mere men, says Paul, to let off a little steam. But Jesus, the most verbally abused and denigrated man in history, has taught his people, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. Matthew 5, verse 9. Same chapter, verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar, says Jesus, that is, you're in the very process of worshiping God, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Notice how urgent. Just leave it. Just leave it there. First... Go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. 
Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and the officer may throw you into prison. Hmm. Twenty years is a long time to be battling back and forth for preeminence and advantage. May the Lord give you and me the grace of repentance concerning our own sin and forgiveness for the sins others do towards us. It's a two-way street. I repent, I also forgive. Secondly, sometimes we make bold statements without acknowledging all the facts. Boy, we got to watch this one. Jacob secretly left Laban's household while Laban was off shearing sheep. He put a three-day journey between himself and his father-in-law. It took Laban seven days to catch up with Jacob in Gilead. And by that time, he was seeing red, as we say. He threatened Jacob, saying, You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. I have the power. Boy, that's a bold claim. But it ignores the intervention of God on behalf of Jacob. Remember Job's ordeal with Satan? Satan, the mastermind of all evil, accused Job of being faithful to God only because God had built a hedge about him and protected him and his family from all adversity. Why was he telling God this? Because Satan needed a special dispensation from God to prove the point. Stretch out your hands, God, and strike everything he has, And he will surely curse you to his face, to your face. Job 1, verse 11. And so Satan was given permission to do this very thing, which he eagerly did, killing all Job's sons, all of his daughters, all of his servants, confiscating all of his wealth in a day. And you thought you had it tough. He will curse you to your face. But Job cursed nobody. He was faithful to God. Next boast by Satan. Oh, skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hands, strike his flesh, strike his bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Job 2, verse 4 and 5. Well, God, you know, you just didn't... He didn't you didn't touch Job personally. And if you touch him personally, he'll show his true colors. Again, the Lord said to Satan... 
Very well. Very well, then. He is in your hands. But you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. Job 2, verse 6 and 7. That means he couldn't stand, he couldn't sit, he couldn't lay down without being in pain. Excruciating pain. And to add insult to injury, Job's wife advocated that, yeah, you should curse God and die. Why don't you do that? To which Job responded, oh, you are talking like a foolish woman. You're talking like an unbeliever. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this Job did not sin in what he said. Job 2 verse 10. So Satan was foiled again. Wow. What's the point? Well, sinners who boast do not reckon with all the facts. Satan is not omniscient. He knows only what he observes or what he plans to do. But even these depend on God permitting him this power. Laban boasted to Jacob, I have the power to harm you. Verse 29. Really? Just the night before, God had warned him, Hey, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Jacob explained God's words to Laban this way. Last night, God rebuked you. Ooh. Verse 42. There's the interpretation. The thought being, you should temper your boasts by considering all the facts. One day in the distant future, Jesus stood before the governor of Rome, Pontius Pilate, who scolded Jesus for refusing to answer his questions. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. John 19, verse 10. Brethren, if we're going to make assertive statements, if we're going to boast, Paul's practice should be our practice. He says, It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, Jesus is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 and 31. You have no strength in yourself even to do what you think you're going to do. God is in control of it all. Thirdly, how hard we hang on to our idols even when the true and living God of heaven has made his presence and will known. 
This is borne out in this account as well. Are you surprised that Isaac and Rebekah would send Jacob back to Rebekah's homeland because, in Rebekah's words, then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes away from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Genesis 27, verse 46. I have to know the Canaanite culture of which the Hittites were a part was a culture of idol worshippers. And as such, they engaged in gross sexual immorality. And in some cases, they even sacrificed their own children to appease their false god. Jacob spent 20 years with Laban, Rebekah's brother. Yet what do we find as his main concern when he pursued Jacob? What had him most irritated? Now you've gone off because you long to return to your father's house, Laban says. I think he's okay with that. But, why did you steal my gods? Genesis 31, verse 30. And when Jacob did make his break from Laban, why are we told, verse 19, Rachel stole her father's household gods. This teaches us that even when Known as the people of God, we may still cling to the idols of our past. If not tangible items made of gold and silver, certainly what Ezekiel records, when any Israelite or any alien living in Israel separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face, then goes to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man and make him an example and a byword. I will cut him off from my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy, I, the Lord, have enticed that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people, Israel. They will bear their guilt. The prophet will be as guilty as the one who consults him. Ezekiel 14, verse 7 and following. What's an idol of the heart? Have you heard of that one? An idol of the heart? Let me read it for you from Ezekiel. Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves any more. With all of their sins, they will be my people and I will be their God, declares the Sovereign Lord. The sins we bow down to and serve, idols of the heart. Lust, power, greed, bitterness, pride, hatred, jealousy, envy, ignorance, when we should know. Laziness, indifference towards others, arrogance, being non-teachable, etc., etc., 
everything the world loves and adores and worships over God. It's a constant vigil is needed to eradicate these idols from our heart and to keep them at bay. Laban and Rachel at this point in her life seem to be at peace with these God substitutes and it angered God. You should have known better. They had some godly ancestors. Finally, it is wise to fear God and not speak of Him or address Him in flippant terms. Boy, this really irritates me about our society. Your reverence towards God is epidemic in our country, in the world. People speak of God, oh, the man upstairs. Or Big Daddy in the Sky. What should we know about the name of God? Isaiah 42 verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Or my praise to idols. And a few chapters later. My people have been taken away for nothing. And those who rule them mock. Declares the Lord. And all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Isaiah 52, verse 5. Boy, does that sound like our country? Sounds like the world. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. Why do people treat God with such disdain? Why do they see it as a little matter to blaspheme God's name? Paul describes the wicked in these terms. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. And here's the way he ends this text. There's no fear of God before their eyes. There it is. Romans 5, 13 and following. No fear. So I didn't know that we were supposed to be afraid of God. Well, not a slavish fear but a reverential fear. A fear that says he's mighty and all-powerful and he is holy and righteous and pure and I'm not. So I don't just go hobnobbing into his presence 
in a carefree, careless attitude with all my sin with me and thinking, well, it's his job to forgive and that's what I expect. And Where's the repentance? Where's the reality that we're not him? It is a fearful thing, the scripture says, to fall into the hands of the living God. If God were a piece of tin or marble or gold or silver or whatever, if it was just a statue, a creation of men, a block of wood, yeah, you don't fear that. And the world is full of idols like that. But the living God the creator of heaven and earth? You're not afraid of him? Whether he can cast your soul into hell? You know when people lose their fear of consequences, it emboldens them to push the limits. That happens militarily. That's why President Trump <clears throat> wants to rule our country from a position of strength. And I think he's right. And he says the world only appreciates strength. If you come across as a mealy mouth, weak president... capitulating here and there and everywhere. You can be sure the officials of the world and of the other countries are going to stomp all over you and take advantage of that. It's their fear of consequence that keeps them at bay. You know the teaching of the love God has ruined the fear of God in our country. Well, God loves everybody. Don't you know that? He's loving. Yeah, but I'm a sinner. That's okay. He loves sinners. No fear of God before their eyes. I'm going to do what I want to do and God isn't going to do anything about it. And Satan is saying, boy, you got that right. And they listen to the serpent teaching his lies, saying there's no consequence to your behavior. No, we need a Savior. And that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. And one does not have to be a believer to fear God. I think it is insane not to fear God. But insanity rules in our day. To Jacob's credit, though he was not yet a man of personal faith in God, that's coming, but it's not here yet. When he takes an oath to seal the peace treaty, with Laban, he phrases his promise this way. 
So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father, Isaac. Wow. He's saying, I may not know all there is to know about God, but my father Isaac feared him, reverenced him, trusted him, depended upon him, and I can do no better than to confirm my oath on the fear of God exhibited by my father. Faith in God has its roots in the fear of God. Salvation is the outcome. The psalmist says, I will listen to what God the what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That his glory may dwell in our land. Psalm 85, verse 8, verse 9. So Jacob made a giant leap forward when he voiced his oath to Laban in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. Young people, you may be able to do the same. Maybe you don't know God, but your father and mother do. So you can cry out to God, seeking to know him, asking to be heard, anticipating his forgiveness and salvation, pleading with that one whom your parents already know. And they already love and they already fear him. What's the promise? It's this. The psalmist says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste, see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. Psalm 34, verses 4 through 9. If there's anything that's needed in our country, it's that there would be a return to people fearing the God of the Scriptures. Not the casual, flipping, crass way they speak about God. Not knowing anything of His majesty and His glory. Our Father, we pray that You'll bless us with the truth of Your Word. Help us to see that You are not to be trifled with. There's only one God. It's the God of the Old Testament. Excuse me, it's the God of the New Testament. There's no difference between the two of them. They're one and the same. 
And you have given us the truth concerning your character, your righteousness, your judgment, your ability to redeem and your ability to condemn. I pray that you will help us. Grant us repentance. If we are flippant in our mind towards God, oh well, and we speak of you in crass and careless ways, please forgive us and give us a soberness of heart concerning our God. Realize that his name is to be praised among his people. He is the Lord of glory. And he is the creator of our very being. He is the one that judges our destiny for us. And I pray that you will help us to see that. And if we don't know you, may you grant us faith and repentance today that we might be included in your heavenly heavenly family. To the praise of Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Okay, our closing hymn is from the hymnal, the brown hymnal, 405. can stand.
Let's pray together. Our Lord, we're thankful for the truth of that hymn. Boy, we would have a lot to fear if we didn't have Jesus as our Savior. But the fear of God, the wrath of God, let me put it that way, fell upon him for our sins. It isn't that God looked away when he saw us. It's not that he became easy on us. He treated us with the sin that was due us, with the wrath that was due for our sin, but he placed it upon his son as our substitute. And we praise thee for that this morning. So we're not under that kind of slavish fear. But we are under a sanctified fear. We revere the holiness of God. When before, we didn't think anything of your holiness. We treated you in a very crass way. If we treated you at all. If we even gave you a thought, which itself is sin. Not to think of our creator. And not to order our lives after his will. I pray, Lord, if there's any here today that's outside of your grace, may you find them today and bring them by your drawing power to the place of the cross. Grant them the forgiveness of making fun of you or dismissing you or whatever aspect it is in their lives. And we pray, Lord, that today would be the day that life, eternal life, would come to their hearts to the praise of the salvation of our Savior. We give thee thanks. Amen. Remember, no service tonight. Pray for Jared. He's sick. Anyone else sick that we should know about? Doug. Yeah. He's got COVID for the second time around. I didn't know you could get COVID. I guess so. Well, it was two different types. So, because I guess there's multiple now.